welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Hi, it's Sarah. On the podcast this week, I'm speaking to crime author Liz Nugent. Liz's first book, Unraveling Oliver, was published in 2014 and was named Crime Novel of the Year at the Irish Book Awards. She's gone on to publish a further three novels, the latest of which, Our Little Cruelties, was published in March 2020 and has just come out in paperback. Liz has an army of high-profile fans, including Graham Norton, Marion Keyes and Lisa Jewell. And that fandom's well-deserved as her book, The Page-Turning Thrillers, will keep the reader guessing to the end. Liz, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted about your bookshop and just wondering... How are you managing with the bookshop? Are you posting books out or are you, have you got an online service going at the moment? Yeah, actually, because uh, obviously we're recording this, we're now in January, which means we're in our third round of lockdown, right. which just kind of means it's become a little bit more normal to us, to be honest, not normal we particularly want, but we've kind of got it down pat. So we had a website, but we had to create a transactional website at the, in, in March when everything sure. went down initially. And yeah, we just take orders online over the phone. We are still able to do click and collect, which is amazing. So people are coming to the door and we are delivering by bike which is uh, which is lovely we've got a whole band of volunteers that help us out and then we do postal deliveries further afield so we're ticking along well congratulations to you I think it's fantastic how so many small indie bookshops have pivoted to the online thing so quickly and responded so quickly and are getting the books out there to the people who need them so congratulations to you Oh, thanks, Liz. That means a lot. It has been tough. The benefit, I think, of being small is that, like you say, you can respond pretty quickly Mm -hmm. to these kind of situations. It's been quite a challenge, but it's been quite fun in some ways as well. Great. In a strange way. All right, let's let's kick off by going back to your childhood, if you don't mind. Sure. You were born and raised in Dublin and were the fifth of six children. Yeah. So I can't imagine life was very quiet. (laughs) No, it was kind of hectic. It was in the days before contraception was legalised. Contraception wasn't legalized in Ireland until I think like 1988 or something like that, like very recently. So, yes, people tended to have big families. There was six of us. We had a five bedroom house, but it did mean a lot of noise and chaos. And there was four boys and two girls. Now, I should mention that my father went on to have a second family. So I have three sisters who I'm just as close to as my first family. But yes, it was a chaotic upbringing. So I found my refuge and escape from the chaos in books. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. So was that something that just kind of happened naturally just as a form of escapism or did it happen through school or through family? How did you discover books? Well, to be honest, I think it was through illness. I had a brain hemorrhage when I was six years old. 
I was sliding down the banisters, something I had been warned against doing many, many times, but being a disobedient child, as I am a disobedient (laughs) adult, I went and did it anyway. And I landed on my head on my brother's tricycle in the hall and had an extradural brain hemorrhage which left me in hospital for a very, very long time. I think possibly six months when I was six or seven years old. And I think that's really when, because nowadays you just give a kid in hospital a phone, Mm. you know, and they've got games and cartoons and they can watch anything they want or an iPad or something. But we didn't have that when I was that age. All we had were books. And I mean, hospital life is very boring, which I have discovered again as an adult recently. It's very dull. And the days are very long, especially when you're a child. You know, when you're an adult, the years get shorter every year. And like, you know, every year goes by faster. Mm -hmm. When you're a child, a whole day is a long, long time in between a visit from your mom or your dad or your brothers, sisters, whatever. So reading became really important to me. And then when I came out of hospital, I was left with a disability. Couldn't use my right hand and I was limping on my right leg. It was almost, I suppose, the effects of a stroke. And so it excluded me from a lot of activities. Like I was never going to be able to play a musical instrument, for example. I was never going to be able to do dance classes. You know, all the normal things that children would do. Mm So reading just became my life. And thank God, because if I hadn't been a reader, I wouldn't have been a writer. Yeah, like you say, if you're in that kind of situation, I can't even imagine what that would be like. I've never had a situation like that, either as being as a child or as an adult, but especially as a child, mm. to have that form of escapism and go somewhere when you're experiencing something pretty traumatic and life-changing yeah. can only be a good thing, right? Absolutely. Being in hospital is quite scary for a child. Of course, all of the nurses and staff and everybody, they do their best to make you feel at home and you do get jelly and ice cream every day. (laughs) So, you know, it's not all bad. (laughs) But you're surrounded by other very sick children. And I presumably I would have been on a neurosurgical ward, so very sick children. So I don't remember other children apart from bald children. So presumably children who were going through chemotherapy or children like I had my head shaved because of the brain surgery I had. So I was bald as well. (laughs) But yeah, I feel sorry for poor little me now. (laughs) I'm almost terrible (laughs) at the thought of poor seven-year-old me. It didn't seem quite so traumatic at the time, I have to say. Because I had my books, you know, I had that escape and I loved comics as well. But books were really important to me. Yeah. And I think when you're going through it, you live through it, don't you? You don't really think too much about what's happening. It's only afterwards when you reflect a lot of the time. Yeah. What was the first book you remember reading? Well, the first book that strikes me is a book that is sadly out of print. And I would love to find the family of the lady who wrote it. I suspect that she's long dead because the book was written... I think 1950s and I haven't found any other book written by her but her name was Margaret J. Baker and the book was called The Shoe Shop Bears and it was about a shoe shop in an English country town and there was a little girl who worked in the shoe shop who I suppose might have been like 15 or 16 years old and the shoe shop 
bears that were used to amuse the children who came in to try on shoes. Because I remember that when I was a child in the children's shoe shop, there was often like toys to play with to distract children while they were getting their feet measured. That was the thing they did in the the olden days when I was a child, (laughs) you had your feet measured. But the bears came alive at night and had their own fun, like changing the displays. And I think they then began to communicate with the girl and they realised that she was in trouble and they helped her. And it was just such a beautiful book. And what I liked about it most, I think, was I learned to read very young. I think before the age of three, I could read. Oh, goodness. Yeah, I was very young. So I think I was five when I read this or six And I have been reading picture books up until this point, but this was the first book that had more text in it than pictures. There's maybe eight illustrations in the book, but apart from that, it's a book that looks like a grown-up's book. It's an adult-style book. And somewhere along the way, it got given away or handed down to other cousins or something, or maybe to my younger sister's. So I lost it, but I went looking for it a couple of years ago and I tracked it down to a library in Minnesota and I bought it from the library. So I now oh. I now own a copy of it all over again. So I'm absolutely thrilled. And I did that without using Amazon. <laughs> Yay. Oh, I'm so pleased you did that. That's so lovely. Yeah, yeah. I, we've spoken to quite a few people as part of this podcast and there are a few people whose initial books are now out of print. But you're the first person that said they've actually managed to get a hold of this. That's really good. Yeah. So The Shoe Shop Bears by Margaret J. Baker really felt important because it really felt like I was stepping up I was now in the adult world of reading (laughs) that's a thing we see that a lot in the shop there's this really lovely set of books that are becoming much more prominent now we categorize them as children's fiction age five to six and they are that point where they're moving from what's very clearly a picture book into a little chapter book it's kind of a rite of passage and in our shop, it's even in a different room from, you know, where the picture books are. The picture books are by the door and then they can go into the kids room where the books for up to 12 year olds are. So these children feel like it's a big deal when they move from one section to another. Oh, yeah, I can see that. So when I was doing a bit of research on your life and where you come from and so on, I obviously saw that you'd had that very traumatic period when you were very little. But then something else pretty traumatic happened to you when you were about eight years old, which involved your neighbour. What happened there? Yeah, my mother was away and she left my 18-year-old brother in charge. So actually, I would have been about 10, I think. She was due home this evening. She ran an antique business, so she often went on buying trips over to England on the ferry. And she would go to antique fairs and that kind of thing and antique shops and Portobello Market and London, whatever. And then she would drive back with all of the stuff that she had bought to Hollyhead and then get the ferry home. And so we were expecting her home this evening. Now, I have to say I was in bed when this happened. But what happened was there was a knock on the door and my brother went to answer it. And there was a man with a mask over his head at the door um, demanding money and wielding a knife. And he asked who else was in the house. And my brother said, well, my youngest brother and sister are in bed. And he said, OK, well, we leave them. Where's everybody else? So he rounded up the four others and locked them into a room and stole money. 
I think we only had five pounds in the house because like mum was due back. So we'd spent all the money in the house. <laughs> so I think he said, do you not have any more? And he's quite aggressive. And we said no. And he said, well, that's no good to me because I think he was a drug dealer and he needed more than five pounds to score his drug deal. But what was terrifying about it was that he was caught because my sister escaped and alerted the neighbours. And luckily, she alerted the neighbours on the left-hand side of our house, because if she had alerted the neighbours on the right-hand side of our house, she would have found that it was their son. So it was actually our next-door neighbour who had held my family at knife point. And later on, even after that, he did several weird things. He wasn't imprisoned, but he had to pay us a large amount of compensation, which meant that I got to go on a school exchange to France that year, which was nice. But it made me very scared. And he did other weird things, like he would steal clothes off our washing line, particularly women's underwear. Oh, and then he would go into the greenhouse and try it on. And then one night when my brother was in the bath, he climbed up the drain pipe outside the bathroom at the back of the house. And my brother could hear this clanging noise. And he opened the window and looked down. You couldn't see anything. And then he turned to the side and he saw this guy looking at him. Oh, God. Like staring him straight in the face. Like, it, it was so freaky. So I spent a lot of my childhood scared because this guy never went to prison. Like... I don't know, understand how he wasn't incarcerated for this kind of terrorization of our family. But like as a family, we always use humor to deflect from the horrible stuff that was going on. Yeah. So we kind of laughed about it and we made a joke of him that he was kind of a pathetic figure. But still, it was very frightening for me wondering, especially because... I used to have to go around the back of the house when I was coming home on my own and if there was nobody at home to get the key that was left under a dustbin lid in the potting shed, <laughs> which was a very stupid place to leave a key considering that we were being observed by the lunatic next door. <laughs> but yeah, that was my childhood. I honestly don't think you could have done anything else for a living apart from write or maybe, you know, maybe be an actor because your life is just, we haven't even got your teens at this point, but your life has been this crazy, you know, set of, not adventures, that's the wrong word because that sounds positive, but, you know, just experiences. Yeah, yeah, terrible things. Terrible yeah, things. awful, yeah. just awful. Well, okay, so you got through all of that. After school, you moved to London for a while before returning yeah. to Dublin and enrolling in an acting course initially. Yes, I decided I wanted to be... Well, what happened was I didn't just come home from London. I had an accident and dislocated my kneecap. Ow. And because of the brain condition I had as a result of the brain hemorrhage, I had undiagnosed dystonia at the time. And because of that, my entire leg went into spasm as a result of dislocating a kneecap. And for a normal person dislocating a kneecap, you just go into a plaster cast or some kind of cast for six weeks and then you're fine. But for me, it was a horrific, terrifyingly painful experience that went on for a long time. And I ended up back in hospital. So this was the age of 20 to 21. Ended up back in hospital in Dublin for the best part of a year and then physiotherapy for another six months before I could walk again. So there was another horrific thing that happened to me. And again, my escape was reading and crosswords. I have to say at that stage, I got into cryptic crosswords. 
So I got very good at those very quickly because there was nothing else to do. But that was a really tough time as well. You know, the formative years of your life, 20 to 21, where you should be out partying and snogging and (laughs) all the good stuff. Yeah, and going to the pub. And I spent most of that year in hospital. But you did then end up going on and work in stage management. Yes. And you worked with Riverdance. I worked with Riverdance. I worked in the Gate Theatre first and worked with some really established names like Michael Bogdanoff of the English Shakespeare Company. I worked on Chekhov and Ibsen and Shakespeare and, funny enough, no female playwrights. I worked in theatre backstage as a stage manager for the best part of 15 years. And the last gig I did was Riverdance. And I toured with that for two years across America and Canada and then the Far East, Hong Kong, Singapore, China. So, you know, I got to travel the world quite a bit with my work. It's actually a very entertaining show. People think it's all about Irish dancing, but there's so much more to it than that. There's all kinds of different styles of world dancing, like American tap and jazz, and there's flamenco dancing, and there's Russian ballet, and there's all kinds of things. And there's a a lovely narrative that runs through it that tells the story of how dance travels the world. And so, yeah, I was really proud to work on that show. It was an amazing experience. I mean, this is when I must have been 30 at that stage. But it was an amazing experience in terms of the reaction, like standing ovations every night, because the music in particular composed by Bill Whelan was so powerful. It was almost tribal, so it, it was almost designed to get people on their feet at the end of the show. Mm. It was really mm. an extraordinary experience. And to see that same reaction all over the world was something else, you know, so... Yeah, I feel quite proud of that time in my life. Yeah, it, would, it sounds like it would have been pretty amazing. These days you live in Dublin yeah. with your husband and you write full time. Yeah. As I said in the introduction, you've had four novels published, the latest of which, Our Little Cruelties, came out just before lockdown. Well, just as lockdown happened. I mean, the book came out on Thursday and the bookshops closed on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you know, the timing was terrible. The launch was cancelled. It was actually released in the UK yesterday. So I had a, a Zoom book launch yesterday evening with Penguin. So that was really nice that we actually managed to have some kind of event But yeah, it came out in March here and I was very lucky in that people did make the effort to go out and buy it. So it went straight to number one and stayed in the top 10 for five months. And I think it was number one for 10 or 12 of those weeks. So, yeah. yeah. And well deserved. It's brilliant. It's a real page turner. I want to come on to the book in a sec, but I just want to touch on one other minor little thing that happened to you just before the book came out. Because even though I feel like we kind of just, on a bit of a down here <laughs> a conversation that I think is worth mentioning because as I understand it you had another stint in hospital just before the book came out what happened then oh god yeah last November I tripped going to a friend's house for brunch on a Sunday morning and I fell and smashed my knee on the bad side on the right hand side smashed my right kneecap and tibia And of course, everything went into spasm. And I was in the hospital for November, December and January of last year. So I had only just got out (laughs) and was trying to negotiate the world on two crutches and then get down to one crutch. and, And then 
lockdown happened. So, yeah, it's, God, my life seems like a streak of misery. (laughs) (laughs) I've had some wonderful times as well. I've just been very unlucky health-wise. But you have to laugh at these things. I mean, at least I'm not in the hospital now where you can't even have visitors. Like, it was ridiculous the last time I was in hospital. I had to schedule visitors because I was getting like four, <laughs> four or five a day. And luckily, I was in a very big empty ward. So there was only maybe two of us in the ward. So she was at one far end and I was at another end beside big windows. So I had the garden to look out on. And I had like visitors and I, you know, they bought me food. They bought me, oh my God, they bought me the most wonderful food because you just wouldn't eat the hospital food. No, I think that just feels like such a foreign concept now, doesn't it? You're a year on now from when you were yeah. in hospital and we think about what the situation is at the moment. Just can't get over how much everything's changed in the last 12 months. I know, it's like, well, no, I won't say this. No, it's just more misery. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> Let's move on. Let's talk about your book. So, um, Our Little Cruelties. Tell us about the book. Well, it's a laugh a minute. Well, actually, there is a lot of humour in it. There is seriously a lot of humour in it. But it is a tale of a very dysfunctional family. It's really about three brothers who are more or less at war with each other from childhood onwards. I mean, the opening line is... All three of the drum brothers were at their funeral, but one of us was in the coffin. And that sets up three questions. Which brother was in the coffin? Which brother killed him? And why? And you have to read the entire book to get to the answers to those three questions. And then it goes backwards and forwards, but it sticks to one brother at a time, telling his impression of what happened up until a certain point. And they talk about their childhood and the rivalries and the enmities and the fights they had when they were kids and how those enmities and betrayals grew larger as they became adults. And, you know, one of them gets married and is a terrible philanderer and cheats on his wife at every opportunity. And their mother is a a very strong influence over their lives. I mean, she adores her oldest son. She's indifferent to her second son and actively hates her third son. And I really wanted to look at that and how it impacted the whole family and how the other brothers reacted to their treatment by their mother and to each other about how they are being treated by their mother. And they mostly just followed their mother's lead as to how each of them was to be treated. So the oldest brother, who is adored, grows up with a sense of privilege and entitlement. And the middle brother grows up jealous and mean and uh, always kind of looking over his shoulder, looking at what the other boys have. And the youngest brother has severe mental health issues. Um, I'm no psychiatrist, but, you know, I would say brought on by his treatment by his mother. Mm -hmm. So I look at the three generations. One of them then has a daughter. And I look at the three generations and how the parenting thing is so important. And actually four generations, because towards the end of the book, I talk about the mother's parenting situation. So it's really four generations of dysfunction and how it is going to continue into the next generation. So it's a dark story, but as I say, there are light moments. There's an entire chapter almost devoted to Jamie Lee Curtis's boobs. 
in trade places <laughs> <laughs> because they're teenage boys and that's what they're desperate to see. So it has its lighter moments, but it is a dark story of betrayal and deceit and ultimately murder. Yeah, it's really, really good. And it really does keep you guessing right to the end. Where did the idea of the story come from? Did you get some kind of inspiration externally? Well, there was one thing, like the character of Luke was the first one who kind of sprung to mind. And I was watching an old YouTube clip of Nina Simone at the Montreux Jazz Festival in 1976, I think, singing Stars, a song written by Genesee. And, and it's a song, the lyrics are about celebrity and the dangers of celebrity and how it can destroy you. And here is Nina Simone in the latter days of her career where things are starting to fall apart for her psychologically. And I don't know whether at this time she's under the influence of drugs or alcohol, but she is clearly not in her right mind. And she shouts at somebody in the audience. She forgets the lyrics to the song. She's really annoyed because David Bowie hasn't turned up and he said he'd be there. And she gets very emotional towards the early part of the song. And then she gathers herself. But the camera stays on her face for a long time. Mm -hmm. And the lyrics of the song that she actually forgets (laughs) are so poignant because it describes exactly where she is in her career. Stars, they come and go. They come fast. They come slow. They go like the last light of the sun, all in a blaze. And all you see is glory. And then it goes on and it talks about, but but nowadays you see the, the stars playing in sad cafes and music halls and they always have a story. And it, the lyrics are just so poignant when sung by this woman who was clearly not in control of her career, not in control of anything, but she can still sing. And my God, she can still play the piano. Like when she loses her place, her fingers don't fail her. So she is still like, she was an incredible concert pianist. So her fingers are still flying. So she manages to keep it going. And it's a really riveting piece of footage. And so that song was really the inspiration for the character of Luke, who allowed me to kind of think about celebrity. And also the two previous books I had written, Lying in Wait and Skin Deep, were primarily about women who, for various reasons, grew up without siblings. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to write a family story about men and particularly brothers and how dysfunctional they could be, because I think I specialise in dysfunctional family relationships (laughs) in my books. And uh, this one seems like ground that hasn't been covered so much. And particularly the rejecting mother. There are very few books about mothers who reject their children. And it's almost like a taboo subject. Ashley Audrain's new book, The Push, deals on some level with that. But that's the first one I can think of since we need to talk about Kevin, possibly. Yeah. And so I wanted to do this. And I did it in Skin Deep as well. I have a rejecting mother. But I dealt with it in a very different way in the book. It wasn't in a family context. So I'm really fascinated by it because people don't talk about it. They just don't. There are people who grow up knowing that their mother doesn't love them. Mm -hmm. There are lots of stories of absent fathers and aggressive fathers and drunken, alcoholic, violent fathers. But there's not so much about mothers who just hate their children. Mm -hmm. So I was really fascinated by that. So I wanted to bore into that a little bit further. It's so interesting when you talk to writers about it's one little spark of an idea that triggers this whole 
thing and then you end up with a book not just magically obviously that's a hard work but it is it's fascinating to hear where it comes from yeah it really just does keep you guessing it's a bit it's a real patient do you personally like to read the kind of fiction that you write or do you find escapism in a different style of fiction what do you read I read a bit of everything I mean I didn't know that I was a crime writer until I got nominated in that category (laughs) in the Irish Book Awards and I was kind of surprised because I just wrote the book that was in me. I didn't really think of genre. It never crossed my mind when I was writing the book. But then when I went to write the second book, my editor rejected the first draft and she said, it's way too funny and it's not dark enough. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, you're a crime writer now. You have to write dark books. <laughs> That's what your readership expects from you. Like you've built up a readership already. So you have to go back and make this book darker. So I got darker and darker, and then Skin Deep was very dark. And then with this one, I decided, no, I'm not going to go quite so dark. So as I keep leading on about there are lighter moments in this book. But again, like there's no child sexual abuse. There's no rape. There's kind of sexual harassment, like the Me Too movement is bought into it with one character. But, you know, I don't do gore. I don't do anything that is... Like, I'm not American Psycho guy. What's his name? Uh, Brett Easton Ellis. I mean, I had to put that book in the bin. I'm sorry. (laughs) It just gave me the creeps so much. I didn't want anyone else to read it. So it's the only book I've ever put in the bin. (laughs) So we're living through some strange times at the moment. We're not far off a year into a global pandemic. What we have found as booksellers is people kind of fall into one or two camps. We do find an awful lot of people are turning to books for escapism, but we also find that some people are just not able to read so much and they're switching off a bit. What's been your response to this in terms of reading i'm literally inhaling books because i don't want to think about the real world and i'm watching a lot of netflix but actually i'd rather be reading if it wasn't for my husband who likes to watch netflix in the evening which is the only time i really get to see him because i'm in the office all day so i would just be reading books all the time i mean i'm averaging about two books a week at the moment and yeah it's constant reading for me and I read all types of genres I read a lot of crime obviously now because I'm in that world Mm -hmm. but I was completely aware of it before that time I have to admit because I was a bit of a genre snob I'm ashamed to say because for some reason I thought that crime fiction couldn't be literary and then you know you read the likes of Jane Casey or Brian McGilloway or Mick Heron and you find these incredibly accomplished like very fine writers who are writing these crime stories brilliantly and I don't know why I thought that the writing wouldn't be as good in crime fiction and in a lot of cases I found it's better and there's plot (laughs) which you don't always get in literary fiction but I have so much to catch up on like I've never read Agatha Christie I've never read Raymond Chandler I shouldn't really be admitting this, but there's whole swathes of the crime ferment that I'm unaware of. And I don't know whether I'm ever going to get time to get back to those. But I reread the classics quite a bit and I read a lot of literary fiction. But my comfort read would be Rachel Holiday by Marion Keyes. <gasps> you and me both. I had to read it twice this year because of the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> I've been finding I've gone really towards that type of book. Yeah. Anything too cerebral, I'm struggling with. Exactly. But I'm definitely going towards the lighter book. Yeah, my comfort reads are Pride and Prejudice and Rachel's Holiday <laughs> because they just make me laugh and they amuse me. And like, they're not 
silly books either. Like Pride and Prejudice deals with inequality in a way that Dickens would never have noticed the inequality that was going on between men and women, although he noticed the social structures and he covered poverty and class difference extremely well. And Marion covers addiction Mm. in Rachel's Holiday and deals with it in a way that is hilarious and accessible and meaningful. So both books are delicious to read, but also carry a strong message. Yeah, I agree. So I have a theory that everybody that reads books has a book that has had some kind of impact on them, quite significant impact, whether that's professionally, whether that's in their personal life. Do you have a book like that? And if so, what is it? I think I would have to say A Fine Balance by Rohinton Mystery. It's set in India during the reign of Indira Gandhi. And it's a dual story. One story is about two tailors from a very low caste who end up as beggars through various awful things that happen to them that are visited upon them by the government. And the other strand of the story is about a middle-class student And it's kind of Beckettian, like I don't know if you're familiar with Waiting for Godot, Mm. it's about two tramps. And one of them is constantly questioning the world. And the other is just dealing with the here and now. And in A Fine Balance by Rowenton Mystery, the two tramps are just dealing with the here and now. And it's the student who has the privilege and the money and the background who is questioning the world. And I won't spoil it for anybody who hasn't read it. But it had a very profound impact on me in terms of inequality and equal rights, racism and the caste system, which exists in every country, whether we like to admit it or not. And it changed my attitude about a lot of things. Well, not that it changed my attitude, but sharpened my attitude Mm -hmm. and made me really think about the world and my place in it and and what I can do to improve things. That's incredible, isn't it? Just by reading a book, it has that kind of impact. How did you find the book? Um, We had done another of his books called Family Matters in my book club. And I liked it. I didn't adore it. But I was in my local bookshop um, a couple of days later and I saw A Fine Balance by him. It was a much big, fatter book. And I was at the stage where I liked reading big, fat books because I don't like a bus that stops. <laughs> you know, I want to be on the express bus. So I want to go all the way through the journey. So I loved at that stage. I'm completely different now. I like short, brief books. But it's a big, fat think six or seven hundred page book and I thought well I'll give this a go and wow did it open my eyes it was brilliant so yeah I came through the book club I was in via a different book Family Matters which is also very good but Fine Balance is light years ahead of it I think it's the one Uh, yeah it is incredible the impact the book can have on somebody let's just go back to you and your writing for a minute obviously the paperback of our little cruelties has just come out congratulations So what's your plan for the rest of 2021? Well, I'm having quite an exciting time with film and TV deals. And it looks like my first book, Unraveling Oliver, they've got one of the Ozark writers is (gasps) doing the screenplay for that at the moment. So that's so exciting. If it happens, I mean, like every book gets optioned and with so many of them, nothing happens. But this now looks more likely because they have a producer attached, Doug Lyman, who made all of the Bourne movies. Wow. 
Wow. So he's attached as producer. Um, I don't know if I saw the name of the director, but they have this Ozark guy, Ryan Farley, is on board as a writer, and they are just about ready to pitch. So they will be pitching to Hulu and Netflix, and those kind of they're going to make a TV series out of it, hopefully, fingers crossed. And then Lying in Wait, my second novel, has just been optioned. Uh, well, we're in the process of closing the deal, so I can't say by who, but we're in the process of closing a deal for that to be what they're calling a high-end TV series. So that will be marvellous. Oh my goodness. Again, if it happens. And our little cruelties, I'm having discussions with Los Angeles on a regular basis. And the next meeting is happening on Monday via Zoom. And we will be talking about, we have a screenwriter attached to that. And we're getting ready to pitch that to the networks. So that's very exciting. I feel very bad for Skin Deep. (laughs) (laughs) It's been left out. (laughs) That's amazing, though, for them all to come at once. And what an exciting time for you. Yeah, well, I mean, they haven't all exactly come at once. I mean, Unraveling Oliver was first optioned by ITV Drama. And then they didn't renew the option. And then it was optioned by Appian Way, which was Leonardo DiCaprio's company. And I was very excited about that. Um, I thought, <laughs> I actually thought that Leonardo DiCaprio had read the book, but I don't think that's probably true. Damn him. <laughs> I, you know, we can dream. And then he partnered with another company called E1. And then they renewed the option three times. And then this year, they suddenly got very keen about it. So now it's ready to go out to the networks. It still might never happen. None of them might ever happen. But I get paid every time something is optioned. So it's almost like free money because I don't have to do anything for it. So Fantastic. We all like them. Yeah. Well, I will keep my fingers crossed for you. That sounds brilliant. And I will definitely be keeping an eye out to see them appearing. I hope they do. Liz, it's been brilliant chatting to you I just think I feel like we've covered like a whole range (laughs) and yeah it's been the time's been and gone so thank you so much for taking time out to chat to me I really appreciate it thank you and best of luck with the books and may everybody please go and support your local bookstore and don't buy from the big warehouse place buy from your local bookstore I'm sure they will arrange to post it out to you if you phone them or email them or tweet them or text them i'm sure they can do something for you we certainly can thank you so much thanks so much liz all of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the most books website this podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at mostly books in abingdon if you enjoyed what you heard please rate review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us